0: Welcome. I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. I have been on several short-term mission trips on many different continents. Uh, I have been to Europe and the beautiful hills, of East Slovakia, uh, I have been to um, see the, the poverty of, of Northern Mexico. Um, I've even been to small villages in the East African country of Uganda. Uh, something that has not changed, no matter where on the Earth that I have I have traveled, is is one thing. Uh, it is that at every location, it's always there. They, they, they show up in a big truck, and over the next little bit, it transforms into an open-air movie theater. Yes, everywhere I've gone, I've seen these. These are the Jesus film trucks. And the man responsible for this is Paul Eshelman. Now, from a article from Daniel Silliman, yeah, he writes for uh, Christianity Today. He says, Paul Eshelman an evangelism strategist who organized one of the largest outreach efforts of the 20th century so that everyone in the world could hear at least once that God loved them. Well, he died on May 24th at age of 80. Eshelman was the director of the Jesus Film Project, producing uh, the 1979 feature for Campus Crusade for Christ, or now they, they call themselves Crew. Uh, in partnership with Warner Brothers, and overseeing its translation into more than, get this, 2,000 languages that movie has been translated into. Now, Eshelman um, arranged for the film to be shown across the world, from places in rural Asia and Africa, where people had never seen electric lights before, to national television broadcasts in places like Peru and Cyprus and Lebanon. According to Crew, nearly 500 million people, yes, 500 million, have indicated they made a decision to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior after seeing the film. That's crazy, isn't it? Quote, I'm driven every day to say, who hasn't had a chance to hear yet? And how can I make that possible? Eshelman once explained that... We are strategists for Christ, thinking of new ways to reach people with the message of life. Saddleback Church founder Rick Warren uh, called Eshelman a dear friend and praised him for his global impact. Evangelist Franklin Graham said God used his life greatly. And according to Steve Sellers, uh, he's the, the, the current crew president, he said, Paul was a champion for the cause of Christ and Challenge the church to consider innovative ways to evangelize. Eshelman was born on October 23rd of 1942, and he he's the uh, eldest son of Janet and Ira Eshelman. His father was an uh, evangelical minister who moved the family from Michigan to Florida in 1950 to launch a Christian resort, and he he purchased 30 acres of a closed army base in um, Boca Raton uh, for $50,000. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, Starting a church and a vacation community that the uh, evangelist Billy Graham dubbed Bible Town. (laughs) Eshelman uh, committed his life to Christ as a boy, but growing up he was less interested in ministry and more interested in business. He decided he wanted to become the head of an oil company or perhaps an auto auto manufacturer. Uh, Eshelman uh, went to Michigan State University where he studied business administration, marketing, and finance. And he joined a Campus Crusade fellowship group, but wasn't particularly serious about his faith. And he later said that he only really kept going so that he could tell his mom that he was part of a Christian group, <laughs> but but not to have to go to church on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Things changed when a, when a girl he had uh, dated told him that he was just fooling around with God. And it was time for him to get serious or break it off. And Eshelman just got mad and told her uh, about all the time that he'd spent in church growing up. But Later that night, he, he couldn't stop thinking about what she said. And he started to worry that God was hardening his heart like he had hardened pharaohs in Exodus 7 through 11. Quote, I couldn't sleep, Eshelman said. I got my, by my bed and I said, Lord, here's my life. And the next morning, he called a Campus Crusade leader. And he said, I'm, I'm on your side now. What do you want me to do? Wow, Eshelman was was taught how to share the gospel through the the four spiritual laws and sent to uh, talk to students uh, in the fraternities. And the the second one he spoke to um, committed his his life to Christ. And Eshelman was was convinced this was more important work than running a large company. And and he joined Campus Crusade in 1966 and went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And the school was roiled by student anti-war protests targeting Dow Chemical Company, which made the flammable gel the U.S. military was using in the the jungles of Vietnam. And in 1967, the campus became the scene of what some historians say is the first university protest in the country to turn violent. Eshelman found this was a wonderful environment for doing ministry. And he said in, 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 in one year, he organized 72 ev- evangelistic meetings in dorms, fraternities, and sororities across the campus. Quote, in the middle of all that chaos, he said, we had people continually coming to Christ. And a few years later, he was tapped to organize a mass youth event that Billy Graham told reporters was going to be the Christian answer to Woodstock. And it would be a Great Jesus Rally, a, a spiritual explosion, or explode in Dallas in, in 1972. The event had, had been dreamed up by Campus Crusade founder Bill Bright, and he said he had a vision. There would be masses of young people and music, and they would train 100,000 college students to evangelize their peers. Bright's top staff, however, didn't like the idea and definitely ducked the assignment, according to uh, historian John G. Turner, who wrote uh, a a history of the founding of Crew, Quote, it was an old trick, one staffer said. Uh, He'd have a, a vision, and then we'd have to put arms and legs to it. And Eshelman was offered the job. Naive and passionate, he he jumped at the opportunity. He was given a generous budget, but little staff report and support. He managed, nevertheless, to pull it off. And he booked Johnny Cash, Andre Crouch, and newer Jesus freak acts like Larry Norman and the Armageddon experience. Wow, that would have been... That would have been something to see all of those guys. He 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 secured the use of the 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 Cotton Bowl for four nights, reserved hotel rooms in sixty five locations across Dallas Fort Worth, and even arranged for three hours of music and preaching to be broadcast on t- on t- television nationwide. The event attracted only. 30,000 college students, but Eshelman opened it up to high schoolers and managed to recruit another 35,000 for a total of 75,000 young people who, between the, the musical performance performances, learned how to share their faith. Another 10,000 came as guests, and Explo 72 was deemed a success. The Jesus film started similarly, as, as Bill Bright's v- vision um that that would be difficult if not impossible to pull off the the idea got financial underwriting however from oil tycoon nelson bunker hunt and drew the interest of john Heyman, a jewish film producer in great britain who wanted to produce something related to the bible the the project got a green light and though eshelman had never worked in film before he was given the job of fixer and gopher and all-around problem solver. The film, which used closely to the text of the Gospel of Luke, was released in 1980 and shown in about 300 theaters. Critics didn't think it ranked with Williams well, Wisner's Ben-Hur or, or um, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. But church groups and Christian uh, schools liked it. And it wasn't a, a, a financial disaster for, for Warner Brothers. And so then the film was turned over to Eshelman for broader and more creative, innovative distribution. And he worked with Campus Crusade staff and translated the film into 21 languages in 18 months and connected with missionary groups around the world to show it in places where people had never seen The Life of Christ on a silver screen, or any other movies for that matter. For about $25,000, Eshelman could could dub the film into another language, and produce a, a new print, and ship the film and projection equipment to a mission field, navigating uh, customs and uh, censorship authorities in the process, and set up a showing for as many people as could gather in a field. Ten of the first showings were in India. People walked more than three miles to see the film. And by 1985, Eshelman's team had translated the film into 100 different languages. They planned to produce the film in every language with more than 100,000 speakers. They simplified and spread and and sped up the dubbing process with new technology and soon shipped Jesus everywhere from Estonia to Ecuador. Everywhere, the film seemed to have a powerful effect. Quote, when soldiers whipped Jesus, you could hear groaning adults cry. And and this is what what, uh, Brian Hellstrom, a a church of the Nazarene evangelist uh, who Uh, showed the film in Africa, said he said, you could see them physically jump back at the sight of the serpent tempting Jesus. Eshelman, who oversaw a team of 300 people, occasionally got to attend a screening of the film. (laughs) The experience, he said, was unforgettable. Quote, you sit on a log out under the stars, he recalls. And watch people who have never seen a film before. Their first time seeing an electric light. And the person of Jesus comes on the motion picture screen. You see their eyes light up. The, the cynical film executive once uh, joked uh, to uh, Eshelman that if he showed Dirty Harry instead of Jesus to people with no exposure to 20th century technology... They'd fall down and worship Clint Eastwood, <laughs> and and uh, you know the vigilant cop as as the as the son of God. But Eshelman rejected the idea that the power of Je- of the Jesus film was its medium and not its message. the The, the messiah warrior in 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 uh, Kenya might enjoy Dirty Harry, Eshelman said, but to understand that God loved him and had a wonderful plan for his life. Well, he, he had to see the Word made flesh right there on the screen. And by, by the year t- uh, 2000, Eshelman's team had translated Jesus into 600 languages and could turn out a new translation in nine days. The Guinness Book of World Records recognized Jesus as the most translated film of all time. And at the same time, Eshelman had started to track all the people's groups that didn't have any Christian workers to to help with translations. The number varied depending on on how one counted groups, but he figured that hundreds of millions of people had never been engaged with a gospel message. And at a nine-day gathering of 10,000 evangelists in Amsterdam, Eshelman and several other organized a, a, a strategy session to coordinate efforts to reach these untargeted people, out of that session came finishing the task, a network of Christian organizations committed to com- completing the, the Great Commission and, and reaching every nation. The goal, Eshelman said, was to make sure everyone in the world had the chance, at least once, to hear that Jesus loves them. They they had waited long enough, he said. It is time for us to finish. Eshel, he, he became the director. Um, and, and by uh, 2017, he had finished the task. Um, he, uh, he said that finished the task had mobilized missionaries to 2,000 new people groups and planted 101,000 churches. Wow. Reaching every nation on earth looked like a real possibility. Quote, if I could choose any time in which to be alive, he said, this would be the time. Paul is, he's preceded by his wife, Kathy. And he is survived by his second wife, Rena, and two adult children, Jennifer and Jonathan. That's his obituary. What an obituary. Isn't that Isn't that something, I mean, here you have an individual who over the course of his life has had such an impact on people around the world. Can you imagine what it's like for him to be in heaven now and be being introduced to every single person that's there because of his obedience? And that's what it was. He he worked hard yes he did all, but he was obedient to what God was calling him to do and that is what God looks for he looks for our obedience and and obedience just isn't agreeing obedience is actually going and doing as well quite a story and and it's not the only one though it's not the only one again from christianity day and, and, and Russell Moore uh, you may have heard that Tim Keller passed away and and I, and I wanted to read you this from from Russell Moore it's it's not an obituary um I could have I, I could have found one for him and, and presented that to you um but I thought this was kind of interesting and so uh, this is from a, a perspective of somebody that obviously knew him um and he says this he says Gandalf, isn't supposed to die. (laughs) That text appeared on my phone yesterday from a New York City pastor who worked closely with Tim Keller. It made me smile and cry at the same time. So many of us called him Tim Gandolf, in in part as a tribute to his frequent J.R.R. Tolkien references, but also because he fit the image of a sage wizard guiding us hapless hobbits out of harm's way. (laughs) In the the opening chapter of the, the Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien writes that Gandalf's fame to the Shire was due mainly to his skill with fires, smokes, and lights. His real business was far more difficult and dangerous, but the Shire folk knew nothing about it. And by any measure, Tim was an impressive figure, the most significant American evangelist, apologist, and and evangelist since since Billy Graham. Most people think immediately of his skill in the areas of preaching and cultural analysis and church planting strategy and, and apologetics. All of that is true, but Tim's real business went beyond his skills and gifts. He was smart, yes, but what made him unique wasn't well, intellect and intellect, but but wisdom. well, wait, let's think about this for a minute, Russell is what he'd say those words from Tim kept me from more dumb decisions than I can recount they they Prefaced the counsel from Tim that it kept me in my position as president of Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, or ERLC, of the Southern Baptist Convention. In in the in the wake of my refusal to support Donald Trump as president, I I was facing significant backlash. Let's list all the people trying to drive me out that are under the age of forty. I said, Nope, I can't think of one. As a matter of fact, I'm having trouble thinking of more than four or five that are under the age of 70. (laughs) Quote, that's what I'm saying, Tim said. Don't do something stupid. Four years later, after consulting uh, scores of friends, um, consulting scores of friends and counselors about whether to leave the ERLC for a new field of ministry, Tim was the one who convinced me to go. I told him the decision was really hard to make. And he said, you've already made the decision. You you know what to do. Your mind is just fighting what your soul already knows. And when I, I protested that I didn't want to make a rash decision I, I might regret later, Tim said, honestly, Russell, all, of all the possible responses from anywhere in the world, do you really think even one of them will be? Why so soon? I laughed, and the decision was made. With just the right joke, Gandalf helped my mind and soul align. Untold numbers of people have similar stories. Tim could call to engage us even while he was undergoing chemotherapy treatments. He sent his last text to me from a hospital room while he was nearing death. He wanted to check on a prayer request I had given to our Wednesday night book club the week before. Tim was unable to care for uh, I'm sorry Tim was able to care for so many of us in times of trial because he didn't tell us what he wanted what what we wanted to hear and we knew that he knew what he was talking about his wisdom came from decades spent in the presence of Christ his um collective uh, closeness with the the Spirit through the Word, and 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 as a result, he he like Jesus often did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Over the past several years, Tim and I were often in conversation with unbelievers, some c- curious and about faith and things, and and others dismissive and hostile. I remember stifling laughter when an atheist whom Tim loved and respected told a group of us that the need for tr- transcendence could now be met with, um, uh, psychedelic mushrooms. <laughs> I wanted Tim's, uh, I watched as, as Tim's eyebrows went up. I felt like White House Chief Uh, of Staff Leo McGarry on the the West Wing when uh, he saw President Jed Bartlett at the press conference, put his hand in his pocket, smile, and look away. Watch this, I said to myself. In every one of those interactions, I never once saw Tim humiliate someone with arguments, even though he could easily have done so. Quote, well, let's think about this for a minute, he said to the atheist, arguing that morality could be explained by evolutionary process alone. Tim explored this man's objections to human slavery, imagining them in the context of the cosmos with without any tr- transcendent moral order. In so doing, he affirmed the, the righteousness of the man's moral I- uh, intuitions uh, while simultaneously showing how his Theory couldn't bear the weight of those same intuitions. Once again, he showed where the mind and the soul, or the mind of the conscious, and the conscious, were at odds and pointed to a better way. And at the end of the conversation, there was no question that Tim understood the argument and had responded with devastating clarity. But we also knew that his talk wouldn't end up as a YouTube video entitled Watch Tim Keller Own the Atheist, he really loved the man and engaged him without passive retreat or intellectual intimidation. When I uh, invited Tim to uh, guest speak in the uh, Institute of Politics class I taught at the University of, of Chicago, most of the students were disconnected from people of faith, and didn't know who he even was. David Axelrod, the director of the program at the time, said, these kids have highly tuned BS detectors, and it's almost like you could hear the the shields come down three minutes after he started talking. Many of them realized, wait, this pastor is as smarter, even smarter than we are, and he's not the least bit embarrassed about Christian orthodoxy or biblical authority. That wisdom freed him from personal ego too. Sometimes he would call and say something along the lines of, "Well, I just wanted to check in on the um, on, on the others, uh, the uh, complementarians and the Marxists and uh, social justice warriors I'm I'm I, I'm seeing on YouTube," and then he would reference a video from the uh, you know Theo brother uh, Theo Bros from uh, Confederate Blood and Rage or or whatever. I I wouldn't in a thousand years even know about that video. I said, why on earth do you? (laughs) He was aware of it because he had compassion on his critics and not just the rational good faith ones with astounding accuracy. He could see the pain they were experiencing. A lot of people are hurting and don't feel significant, he said. They try to find significance in attacking people they think others will find significant. When he saw those critics and others coming after him, he didn't feel attacked. He saw it as a prayer request and 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 prayed accordingly. I wish uh, that I were that magne- uh, magnanimous, I said in response to the uh, the bros video. <laughs> but but i don't look at those things because i want to call down fire from heaven and he responded with a smile he said well i guess we all have a little you know bros side to us don't we ouch <laughs> tim's wisdom wasn't just about feet and about treating people well he would almost align the task of of um, assigning the task of of tracking people who needed support, even before they knew they needed it. For example, the Anglican priest, Tish Harrison Warren, started writing a weekly column for the New York Times, and he said, she's going to be great. She's she's, uh, such a good writer. In that venue, though, no matter what she writes, she's probably getting a lot of criticism. She can handle it, but it's never fun, and we need to encourage her When that happens in in those and other similar moments he showed more than than intellect he uh, exhibited wisdom through compassion maturity grounding solidarity and and good intuition the pastor who texts me gandalf is not supposed to die well he knew tim wouldn't live forever but that but but that he meant He was he was trouble imagining a world without Tim's voice of calm, steady and joyous counsel. Gandalf once said to Frodo, Goodbye now. Take care of yourself. Look out for me, especially at unlikely times. The next time we see Tim Keller will be at the consummation of all things in Christ. On that day. Tim won't have to talk any of us out of stupid decisions. He won't have to give any of us a reason for God. But I like to think he'll say to C.S. Lewis or Herman Bavnik or one of the countless skeptics that he led to Christ, well, wait, let's think about this for a minute. (laughs) And like many times, this side of uh, of the Shire will see that Gandalf can indeed die for a little while, but the gospel he carried stands forever. I liked that. I, I liked it. I, I didn't always agree with Tim Keller or, or or some of his stances and things like that. We've we've even talked a little bit about that here on the podcast. But I will say that these two men have done so much for the kingdom of God and and seeing them pass is it, it creates a huge hole um, where they really did so much, not not in their own power, though. I want I, I kind of want to, you to see this. that these men didn't do this in their own power. They did this in Jesus' power. They did this because they were obedient. They did this because they were conduits that they allowed, the Holy Spirit, they allowed God to work through them. And yes, they were the hands and feet. They had to do the work. They had to put in the time. They had to do these things, but they allowed God to work through them in order to do them. And it'll be interesting to see who who picks up where these two gentlemen have, have left off. And I wanted to bring it to you, and I wanted you to see two great men and how they did wonderful things for the kingdom of God. And you may you may have your thoughts. You may have even had your encounters. I would love to hear them. And you can always uh, do that by, uh, by sending me a, a just a, a, drop me a note at UncommonSensePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Organite Communications.